We're so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome back to our podcast series over the book of Luke. We will be getting into chapter 3 today. And um, I, I hope that you guys have been encouraged and enlightened and challenged to think think beyond what you might have always even heard or have always known, um, and to take a look at these stories as more than just the stories of have some of these things come to life, of having knowledge through the Old Testament of what, uh, why Jesus had to do some of the things that he did, why his parents did some of the things they did, and how it corresponds to us even today. And we're going to get into that even in chapter 3, um, and, and stay with me on this. Some of you might, this might not be your cup of tea, and let me just, I'll be really honest with you, it's not really my cup of tea either. I'm, I'm a teacher that the, the black and white, straight and narrow, te- you know, really the epistles are, are kind of my forte um, of being able to break those down and see those things of, of what are we supposed to be doing as Christians? What does it look like? Um, what is truth? Going through some of these stories, while I do enjoy it, it's not my strength. And uh, so hopefully this has been encouraging for you. And if this is not really your thing as far as like, okay, uh, going through these stories like the, the birth of Christ and some of those, they're great. But I really want to get into the meat, like the nitty gritty, the, the down, um, not down to earth, the, the black and white stuff like the epistles, the do's and don'ts even if you will. Uh, that's really what I want to hear more of. We're going to get into that. Um, so the first four chapters are more story mode, and I'm doing my best to try to go through here and hoping that God's going to use my voice in some way to encourage and enlighten and challenge you, um, as well as myself as we go through this, because I don't, I don't pre-study um, these things. When we go through this, I essentially, I open up my Bible, and occasionally I'll read over it beforehand, but I don't jot down cross-references, I don't go back and study, I don't take hours to be able to, to dissect everything. What you're getting is what I'm getting whenever we go through this. Because I pretty much set up my microphone, plug it up, and open my Bible, and I pretty much start right away of just going into these chapters. And so what you're getting is what I'm getting. I'm not doing any pre-studying. I'm just going through this with you, relying on the Spirit to pull from all my years of studying that I've gone through this uh, for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. You know, I used to study... Um, anywhere from about three to seven hours a day. I did that for a stretch of several years. And um, so I'm just relying on the Spirit to pull from those things, and um, I'm going through this with you guys. So with that, we're going to get into chapter 3, and we're really going to talk mostly about chapter 3, 1 through 23. After that, it's going to be really the the lineage of Mary, um, or the lineage of Jesus through Mary, um, as opposed to in Matthew 1, the lineage of Jesus through Joseph. And so, you know, we're, we might talk a little bit about that, but this is really going to be a podcast about the first 23 verses in chapter 3. So with that said, it says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, 
Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Eturia, Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. Wow, that's a mouthful to say. I'm not even sure if I said those right, but we'll, you know, you, you know exactly if you're reading along with me. Um, it said, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So it says, during this time, set in the timeline, set in the stage of what's going on, who are the rulers, who's, what, you know, who's, who's occupying the position of Herod, who's occupying the governor of, um, of uh, Judea and Pontius Pilate, all these various different ones. Who's the Caesar even at Tiberius? Who's in leadership? It's set in the timeline of when John was here. He's starting his ministry, so it's after the age of him being 30. So Jesus is roughly about 30 at this time as well because they were only about six months apart. We're getting the timeline. He says, in this moment, the word of God came to John. The son of Zechariah in the wilderness. So as John was in the wilderness, the word of God came to him. I don't know how many years he spent in the wilderness. It says that he went out into the wilderness until the day of his showing forth. He was eating um, wild honey and um, locusts. That was his menu. That was his meal. That was what he ate. And he lived out there in isolation until the day when God said, John, it's time. Go. Now, you need to understand something. John, and even as I've talked about in chapter 1, of Luke, you're going to find the gospel accounts are still Old Covenant. The New Covenant does not get established, as Hebrews 9 says, until the death of Christ began. Until he died, the New Covenant could not come in. Because a death had to occur that annuls the Old Covenant that God made with the Jews in the Law of Moses. A death has to occur, just like with marriage. Same exact thing. The only way that a marriage covenant is annulled is through death. Now that's coming through New Covenant theology and understanding as 1 Corinthians 7 and Romans 7 makes abundantly clear. A marriage covenant is only annulled through death in the same way that a covenant that God made with the Jews could only be annulled by death. So what we see in the gospel accounts is still old covenant teachings. It's the physical form of things. So a lot of people, and I bring this up because a lot of people look at sometimes the teachings of John and even the teachings of Jesus without an understanding of when Jesus is clarifying <coughs> clarifying what was written as opposed to establishing what is to be. There is a big distinction between those two and you've got to discern which one is which on that. And the text will reveal it. You just have to know it in full. But a lot of people use the teachings of John and even the baptism of John to try to um, make that a new covenant teaching and lifestyle and ordinance. And that's not always the case. In fact, rarely is that the case. John is a precursor. He gave physical precursors to the spiritual fulfillments that are only through Jesus Christ. And that will make sense in a second as we go to this. So he served a purpose. He was the physical before the spiritual. If you will, he was the firstborn before the secondborn. He was the one that gave physical instructions that were a prelude to the spiritual fulfillments in Christ. Now here's where we go. He says, he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Here's one of the first ones that we find. 
The baptism of, of repentance that John gave was one of physical water for the washing of sins. Now that was an old covenant thing. That was an old covenant thing that was a washing that took place in order to forgive sins. But we know in scripture, in the new covenant, that the only way to have your sins forgiven is through the washing of Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit. That's the only way to have your sins forgiven. It's not through a water baptism. It is through the washing, the regeneration, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, as Titus 3 says. Or you could even go into 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, where it says the same thing, that we were washed with the Holy Spirit. We were regenerated with the Holy Spirit. The word that's actually used there, and let me flip to it real quick. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, I believe it is washed. Well, let me just clarify to make sure that I'm not uh, mistaking this. It says, but you were washed... You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. So how were we washed? How were we sanctified? And how were we justified? By the Spirit that washed us. Not a physical water. It was the Spirit of God. That's what washed us. And what gave us a cleansing that could not be undone, if you will. And so in this one, this is our first understanding of the precursor of the physical that was to be a precursor to the spiritual, right? And John says, he baptized, proclaiming of baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. That's one of the significant parts right there. Prepare the way of the Lord. You are going to be a physical precursor to the Lord when he comes in a spiritual fulfillment. I cannot emphasize this enough for you to understand this. Otherwise, your doctrine will be very much so um, erratic and impure. He says, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God, meaning they shall see Jesus Christ high and lifted up. The point in this is that John and what he's about to go in and do and teach and illustrate is all really going to be kind of summed up in verse 16 as we get to it. But all of it is a physical precursor to say that I am inferior, he is superior. I am going to give you a physical precursor and and an example of something that he is going to embody spiritually and give you the fulfillment only through him. I can't save. John is saying, I can't save. I will not be able to save your soul. I can wash your body. I can give you some instructions. I can do some things under the old covenant. Jesus is the only one who's going to be able to save your soul. And give it rest. And much like the law, a physical precursor to the spiritual fulfillment that we found in Christ. You could even look at it as the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a day that was instituted that was to be kept holy. It was a day that was supposed to be observed from Friday night until Saturday night sundown. A day that was supposed to be observed and it was was, uh, considered a very bad thing if you didn't observe it. But Hebrews 4 talks about it as well as the New Testament. That Jesus has become our Sabbath. It's not about um, a day of rest anymore that was for our physical bodies. It's now about a person of rest for our souls, as Matthew 11 talks about. 
Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden. Your physical bodies and your souls are laden. Burdened with ceremonial rites and rituals, as the Greek word illustrates. Come to me and you'll find rest, not for your bodies, but for your souls. The spiritual aspect of truth, of what it'll do. Now, some of that might be too in-depth for you, and that's okay. You'll get it eventually as you continue to go through the Word. And I will never pretend like I am the, the greatest expositor of Scripture, that I'm the, the greatest teacher that's ever lived. I understand I have my limitations, and sometimes I ramble, and sometimes I go on and I say things that are, you know, you're like, wait, what's this dude talking about? I totally get that. But what I do is I put my trust in the Holy Spirit, and that He is going to lead you into all truth as you are willing to be led. As you are willing to make him your treasure and say that I, I desire to know your word, God will show you and unveil to you truth if you're willing to humbly receive it. So here's what he goes on to say. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Now understand this. In, in the text and other accounts, we know that this is specifically being referenced to the Pharisees. Here it makes it seem like it's to all the crowds. But John didn't say this to all the crowds who came out to be baptized by him. He said it specifically to the ones who had no intent to be baptized by him, but were observing what was going on and even grumbling because of it. This is what he said to them. And it was no gentle um, statement. I don't catch John as being somebody who is just a little gentle teddy bear. I catch John as somebody who was blunt, who was bold, who said what he felt, who said what he thought, and... He was to the point. And it might have ruffled some feathers, but he didn't care. He says, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Like, it wasn't me. I wasn't telling you to flee your self-righteousness. I wasn't telling you to flee those things. In a sense, almost it seems like John wanted them to get it. I don't know if he did or not. But it, it seems like that's kind of what he wanted. Who warned you? I didn't. I didn't go to the synagogues. I'm out here in the wilderness to the people. I didn't even want you to know about this. I'm in the wilderness at the Jordan baptizing people. If I wanted you to know, I'd have gone to the synagogues. He says, you brood of vipers. That was, that was, that was an insult. That, that wasn't something that gave grace to his hearers, as Ephesians 4 talks about, right? I don't think that that was very seasoned with salt. It was blunt. It was to the point. But it wasn't intended to make these Pharisees feel warm and cozy about themselves, which I think is the trap that we fall into today, to think that everything that comes out of our mouth has got to be kind. It's always got to be soft. No, Jesus was very blunt as well. Paul was very blunt. In fact, what was it, Stephen, when he says, you uncircumcised people, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart, you always resist the Holy Spirit. You kill the prophets. And then Paul talks about the same thing. He's like, in, in Acts, when he's talking about it to people, I mean, they all were blunt and bold, and they said some unkind things. But it was meant to lead people to repentance. And listen to what it says about here. In verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. John says, look, if, you, if you're repentant, then come on down. Come join us. Don't stand there on your mountaintop looking down at us, thumbing your nose at us, grumbling about what's going on. You don't even know what you're rejecting. You don't even know what you're missing because I'm a precursor to the one who's coming. And if you reject me, then you're going to reject him. 
Now, there's a lot of people who would say that water baptism is the thing that's going to save you, but I would argue with that because in Cornelius, in Acts chapter 10 and 11, it goes on to talk about how Cornelius and the people who were with him, these Gentiles, that they received the Spirit and were speaking in tongues. And then afterwards, Peter says, who can withhold water for baptizing them? For giving them this outward, this, this outward display of an inward transformation. The Holy Spirit has come into them just as it did to us. This message of salvation by grace through faith has come to them. It wasn't through their deeds of getting water baptized and then they all of a sudden were worthy enough. The Spirit came into them. And as Ephesians 1, 13-14 talks about, it says that in Him, when you received the gospel of your salvation, you heard the word of truth and you believed in Him. It says that you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Which is the down payment or the earnest of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. It is the Spirit of God that is the mark on His children, not if you've been water baptized. Now, is water baptism important? Absolutely. I think if somebody wants to refuse getting water baptized as a declaration to the church of who you now associate with, then something's wrong. Because I think one of the first acts of obedience that the Spirit is going to lead you to is to be baptized. But it is not what saves you. And yes, I'm fully aware of 1 Peter 3 and I would challenge you to make sure that you go and understand that with a spiritual lens. Before you start trying to make accusations that the water baptism is what saves. Because I'm going to show you verse after verse after verse that would say that water baptism and getting dunked in water is not going to save you. It will be the blood of Jesus Christ. And the spirit that he gives you that identifies you with him. That without which, if you do not have him wash you, then you have no share with him. As he says in John 13. When Peter says, you'll never wash me. And Jesus says these words. If I don't wash you, then you have no share with me. Let me just tell you real quick. Jesus never baptized anybody in water. The word says that in John. Jesus did not baptize anyone with water. And if that was what saved people, <clears throat> then I think he probably would have, don't you? He would have made it more of an importance. Instead, John the Baptist was the one who really baptized. And Jesus had his disciples baptize. But Jesus didn't baptize. Because he has one that is going to actually save. Now hopefully that made sense to you. You were, you were following along with me. You are tracking with me on that one. But I would just encourage you... You need to understand that as Romans 8 9 says, that anyone who does not belong to Christ, they don't have the Spirit of God. But if you have the Spirit of God, you belong to Him, whether you've been water baptized yet or not. You've been washed and regenerated and renewed through the Holy Spirit. It is a, a heavenly, supernatural transaction, essentially, that has taken place. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus as Lord of your life, the Holy Spirit comes upon you and He washes you and He cleanses you. He sanctifies you and He justifies you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not because of any deeds that you did in righteousness. And that includes water baptism. It goes in verse 8, it says, Bear fruits and keep with repentance. I would, I would say that it is a fruit of your repentance of you wanting to get water baptized. These Pharisees didn't have it, and John knew it. He says, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. No harm shall come to us. No judgment shall come to us. We're Jews. We're God's people. Well, if you heard my message in, in Luke chapter 2 about the Jews being God's people, then you might have a full understanding of what this is. Because John says, don't you say to yourself at all that you're Jews, and that that somehow is going to bring you favor with God. 
Because the one who's coming after me, he's not going to look upon your ancestry. He's not going to look upon you being a Jew or a Gentile. So don't even begin to say to yourself, uh, I'm a Jew. I'm God's people. That's exactly what Luke 13 was all about. It was Jesus says, I'm the door. I'm the way that you're going to get to heaven. And there's going to be many people who are going to try to climb in some other way. And they're not going to get in. And then one day you're going to stand before me as a Jew. And you're going to stand before me. And you're going to be outside looking into heaven. And you're going to see the Gentiles. Those who came from the north, the south, the east, and the west. Reclining at a table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're going to see them in. And you yourself are going to be an outside. And you're going to say, you came to our streets, Jesus. You came to us, remember? You came to Israel. You came to Jerusalem. You taught in our streets. You came to us, Jesus. And he's going to say... None of that matters because you chose to reject me because only in me do you belong to God. Your lineage and ancestry will do nothing for you on that last day. So all those people who like to try to say that the Jews are God's people, that Israel is God's territory, man, I'm just going to tell you, open up your eyes to be able to see what the word's teaching. Many times the Spirit says it to his own church in Revelations 2 and 3. To the seven churches that Jesus writes to, or that John writes to, but Jesus essentially given him the words. And he says, that this, let he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I'm just going to tell you, I really hope that you are asking God to open up your spiritual ears and eyes to be able to see truth. Because I'm telling you right now, if you think that Israel is still God's territory in his land and that somehow that's his beloved territory... And that the Jews are still his beloved people. That they are the people of God. I'm going to tell you, your ears are closed to hearing what truth really says on that. And you'll be limited in your scope of understanding. The reality is that the, the association that God had with the Jews as being his people died when the old covenant died with Christ. Here there is neither Jew nor Greek. So it goes on, he says, For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, you, you could probably look at this as that axe being cut to the root. You could look at the root maybe being Christ and a foreshadow of what was going to happen to the Christ, um, to Jesus who was going to be hung on a tree, a cursed man's death. Um, is Deuteronomy, I think it's 21 or maybe 23, talks about it. You could look at it like that. And you could probably make an argument for it. Or you could look at the root being the Jews. You could say that even now the, the, an axe is being taken to the root and you're about to be uprooted. You're no longer going to be his people. Whichever one you kind of look at in the context of this, just keep it contextual. Don't, don't ever decontextualize a passage and miss what the context is trying to instruct to us. You could probably look at either one of those and probably make a case for it. And maybe both of them are technically true. But the reality is, is he's saying, look, your lineage of being a Jew is, is coming to an end. And whether that's referencing Christ when he died on the cross, which severed the relationship that God had with the Jews as being his people because it was bound to the old covenant that was made with Israel. Once that covenant has been made now obsolete, as Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10 talks about, so was his identification with the Jews as his people. Why that's so difficult for people to understand, I don't, I don't grasp it. Because to me, it's clear as day. 
So whatever you see in that, John's essentially telling them, your, your um, identification with God as being his people, it's coming to an end. You better make way for the new way. It says, and the crowd asked him, what then shall we do? Like if our lineage, if our ancestry is no longer going to be what identifies us with God, what are we supposed to do? Well, remember, John is a precursor to Jesus, and he's still under the old covenant. He's still somebody who's saying, no, 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 it hasn't come to an end yet. Already the axe is being laid to the root of it, and it's chopping away, but it ain't come up yet. So what he's about to instruct them is still an old covenant way and mentality. Okay? Do not get any of these things confused with new covenant understandings through Christ. He goes on, he says, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. He says, okay, share with what you got. That's a good biblical principle. Just share with what you got. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Why isn't he saying you need to repent and give your life to Jesus? Because the gospel hadn't been invited to them yet, just yet. Because Jesus hasn't died yet. The new covenant hasn't been established. So he's given them basic principles of life. Because I'm going to tell you, notice all these things as, what should we do? Well, let me just tell you, there's nothing you can do to get saved. There's nothing that you can do. Save one. There's only one work that leads to salvation, and that is to put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord on what he did. It's not about what you do in order to inherit. John is giving them basic principles of how to be good people under the law of Moses. Under the physical covenant that God established. These people, he's not giving them instructions on, you need to come out and you need to make sure you give your life to Jesus. It's like the the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. Have you, have you, you know, this, these first five or whatever, these moral commands, keep those. Knowing the guy's heart, knowing why he's there, knowing that he's still searching for eternal life. The guy responds and he says, I've done all these for my youth. I've, I've kept them all. I've done it all. I have done all of this. And he says, and yet you're still on your knees begging me for eternal life because you don't have it. Did you catch that? This guy had done all of this stuff since his youth and he was still missing something. Because only Christ fills what we can't. And Jesus says, sell your possessions, give to the needy. Then come follow me. And the guy walked away unhappy. And Jesus says, see, it's it's not necessarily about what you do that's going to get you in good standing with God. Near as much as your position in me. And in order to get that, you need to relinquish your life. And as John 3.30 says, in a very similar text to what John the Baptist says about Jesus, it says that he must increase, but I must decrease. Before he can increase in who I am, I must decrease in who I am. That's why Galatians 5.24 says that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified their flesh with its desires and passions. That's all Jesus was telling this rich young ruler to do. It wasn't just some instruction to say, okay, if you want to actually follow me, then you need to go sell everything that you have and give it to the needy. Then you can come do that. No, that's not what Jesus is stating there. 
He says, he, you need to let go of what you value most. And when you do that, you can come follow me. For a lot of people, that is their treasures. That is their gold. That is their silver. That's their possessions. He, he embodies that in the end of Luke chapter 9 and in Luke 14. But the point is, it's an all-encompassing thing that Jesus is saying. You need to sell what you treasure. Give up what you treasure most. And only then can you come and follow me. John's not telling them that. John's just simply giving them some basic moral instructions. Not unto salvation, but until salvation would be presented to them. I hope you understand that. He goes on and he says, and he said, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and what, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Simple statement. But notice that it's John who's telling them. It's not Jesus. It's not the epistles. It's John. Was John wrong for it? No, because under the law, this was something that would have been done. John was just instructing them. But it was not the way of Christ. He goes on, he says, As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. Listen to this. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water. (laughs) Okay, I'm, I'm dunking a few individuals. But he who is mightier than I, he is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. John knew that these people were elevating him to a level of being the Christ and he squashed it. He said, no, 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 no. Don't you confuse me with him. My teaching and my deeds and the things that I'm doing are not even worth comparing to what he can do. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. So please don't look at my teaching as equal to his. Please don't look at my life as equal to his. I know that the word says that I am the greatest born of woman, but understand that I had my expiration date the moment that Jesus was born. My baptism with water is insignificant compared to what he baptizes with. Please don't confuse the two. And I'm asking you, Christian, please don't confuse the two and make that which is the lesser superior to that which is the greater. You can be water baptized all you want to, and I think it's an important step. But in no way is that going to be what saves you. It will only be the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit that is given to a person the moment that they believe in truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That He is Lord He says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John will baptize with water for a temporary band-aid of the remission of sins. Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now you could go to Acts 2 and you could look at what he says in 38 through 42 and that one or 41. And you could look at that. And I'm going to tell you, man, don't, don't base your doctrine off of the book of Acts. And some of you might think, well, that, that sounds heretical. Let me just tell you this. 
The book of Acts is the account of the apostles as they learned the gospel message for themselves. In Acts 2, Peter still had a whole lot of his old covenant teaching and his Judaistic training. But none more important in understanding that it was a learning process for them than in Acts 9, 10, and 11 when Peter is up on top of this um, up on top of this roof sleeping. And he receives this vision from heaven. And it's this sheet that's descending from heaven. And it says that every beast, every, everything of all creation is on this sheet. And it's descending down. And this voice from heaven comes. And he says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, my Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. I've never put anything in my mouth that is unclean because it was forbidden by Torah, by the law of Moses. God, I can't do that. And he says, what God has made clean, do not call unclean. And right then, these two men from Joppa, they came and they were seeking him for Cornelius, who God had already appeared to him and said, send two men to Joppa, go get Peter and bring him back with you. He's got a message of salvation that you need to hear. And Peter was reluctant at first, and he probably wouldn't have gone if God had not showed him that vision. Because he, he put two and two together right then, and he knew that it wasn't necessarily about food, though it was about food. As First, as first Timothy chapter 4 talks about, going back into Genesis 7, 8, and 9. But it was about the Gentiles. You see, to him, under the law, Gentiles were unclean, and he should have no association with them. Which is why they questioned why he was even with the Samaritan woman. It's like, don't you know that she's a Samaritan? You shouldn't be talking to her. Because the law was something that forbid it. And so he probably wouldn't have gone if it wasn't for this vision. But he goes anyways because of the vision. He goes and Cornelius receives the Spirit of God before being water baptized. And it was astounding to Peter. They were perplexed. They were astounded at the fact that they just received, these Gentiles just received the Holy Spirit in the same way that they did. As Jews. And Peter learned something that day. Same way as in Galatians 2. Whenever Paul talks about that. He had to rebuke Peter to his face. Because he stood condemned. Because while the Jews were there. I'm sorry. While the Gentiles were there. Peter was, was socializing with them. As fellow Christians. But when the Jews came with James. Into the same place. He separated from them. Because he still had things to learn. About what the gospel afforded the Christian. And what it, um, not even just afforded, but what it accomplished. And Paul had to rebuke him to his face to say, dude, what are you doing, man? In Christ, there's no partiality. And here you are showing partiality between the Jews and the Gentiles as if they're still unclean. So I say all that to get you to understand that in Acts 2, I don't believe that Peter is stating an unequivocal statement that is an eternal decree by God to say that this is how you're going to have your sins forgiven. Be water baptized. That was still something that was, that was learned under the Old Testament of a physical washing that, that Peter even had to learn the spiritual revelation and fulfillment of it. I think a lot of people miss that today. There was a, a seminary professor that my dad told me about once who said, never divide your doctrine with an axe. And his point on that was, <clears throat> always... Take Acts as the book. Always take Acts in accordance with the fullness of the epistles. Because the epistles, the apostles' teaching 
is what our faith is built upon. Not the story of the apostles learning the Christian life as we all are being sanctified, even them. And so does Acts 2, 38 through 41 have its place? Absolutely, but it is to be weighed and measured with the fullness of the text. Understand, John was a physical precursor to the spiritual fulfillment that is only found in Jesus Christ. And verse 16 illustrates that. Going on into 17, he says, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You can look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. It talks about this concept, maybe even going into 9. Um, I don't remember exactly how far it goes, but it just sense that Jesus is going to come and he's going to inflict vengeance on those who do not obey the gospel or do not know um, our Lord or obey the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They'll suffer eternal, unquenchable fire apart from the presence of the Lord. It's going to come. And it's for those who don't know him and who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me just real quick ask you guys why you think Jesus was baptized. And this just came to me as to um, that there might be some who, who question why Jesus was baptized, because it says it was to fulfill all righteousness. Well, let me just tell you real quick. Again, it goes into the physical and the spiritual. And if you don't have understanding of that, then you're missing out on a whole lot of what Scripture is teaching. But in this concept, he says that, and I think it is in Leviticus chapter 8, if I remember correctly, that in order for a priest to put on the holy garments, he must be washed by another priest. Very specific in what it states. And so let me just tell you, John the Baptist was of the, the Levitical priesthood. His son, um, his son, his dad, Zechariah, as his son, he served as a priest. And so John was a Levite. And so Jesus, in order to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, he had to be washed by a Levite because he himself was from the tribe of Judah. So in order to put on the holy garment and this transcendence of what took place between the physical and the spiritual, the holy garment would be the Holy Spirit. And it says that, um, and stay with me on this, in order for a priest to be able to put on that holy garment and then serve as a priest and then be able to actually... Um, do the same for another individual of get, get them to put on the holy garment. They themselves had to be washed by a priest. All right? So in order for Jesus to be able to be a baptizer of the Holy Spirit, he first had to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law and be baptized by a Levite in order to put on the holy garments of the Holy Spirit so he could then be as a spiritual priest, the high priest, if you will, and baptize or wash with the Spirit. Put the holy garment on others. So the righteous requirement that's there to fulfill all righteousness was not that water baptism is the righteous requirement that we have to fulfill. It was the righteous requirement of the law that Jesus had to in order for him to be able to wash others. And as the word says, we must be washed by him to have a share with him. And that washing is the Holy Spirit whom he baptizes with. So, hopefully you understand that, you see that, but that's to answer that question that might pop up. It says, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been re reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked John up in prison. Essentially, Herod being an unbeliever, a Gentile even, he held the position of being Herod, and he was named Herod the Tetrarch. He did a lot of evil stuff, including having his brother's wife, which was unlawful, and John, 
um, went to him and he basically said, look, I'm going to rebuke you. You're a Gentile, you're an unbeliever, but you're still sinning. You're still against the word of God. And he rebuked him. I've heard a lot of times that we shouldn't rebuke people who are unbelievers. And I think that that's just hogwash. How are they going to know that they're in, in error? How are they going to know that they're wrong if they don't know what they're doing is wrong against the holy God? John is proof of that. John went and he rebuked Herod for his unlawful living. And it got him put in prison. It says, now all the people were baptized. And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son with whom, with you I am well pleased. So kind of in summarizing a lot of this, I want you to understand John is a precursor that gave physical identifications that was later to be interpreted spiritually and received spiritually in the fulfillment that Jesus Christ and him alone can give. Okay, John could not save. Only Christ does. The water baptism that John gave could not save. Only the baptism that Jesus gives can. And that is the one of the Holy Spirit. And that is the one that First Peter 3 is talking about when he says baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. Not as a physical illustration of it. But a spiritual understanding to know that it is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that is given to you that does not necessarily come with tongues. If you're Pentecostal and you're listening to this and you think that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is evidence through the witnessing of tongues um, is what is being referenced, that is not the case. Because Paul says that there are people in the church that not all of them are going to speak in tongues. But we know Romans 8 9 says that anyone who belongs to him has the Spirit of God. And so, that's a topic for another day. What he says in verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 33 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. And then it goes on, and he talks about all this stuff going on, even into the very beginning of 38, where he says, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam was the firstborn. He was the one that displeased God, and through, and through which death came. Jesus is the son of who pleased God in which life ultimately ended up coming. Romans 5 talks about that. That in Adam all men die, but in Christ all men live. And so you see the parallel between this, that Jesus, he is the son with whom he was well pleased. Adam was the son with whom he was not pleased. And depending on which one you are in, will depend upon whether or not you are pleasing to God. Are you in Christ? Or are you in Adam? There is no middle ground. You are either in one or the other. And may your life be seen in Christ on that last day. As you abide in him faithful to the end. So that on that last day he can say well done my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Y'all be blessed.